I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I am Saurabh Todi, and I have with me my colleague. Aditya Ramanathan, and we're going to discuss, uh, you know, about Moon. So Moon is is quite exciting, apart from the fact that you know uh, India has committed that you know it would land an Indian on the Moon uh, by 2040. There's also the developments all across the world, you know, regarding Moon. There are changes in terms of the the, the treaties that are being uh, negotiated or discussions regarding you know what would the Moon you know lunar governance look like you know now as 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 the moon gets as crowded as earth you know everyone trying to go there how would that change you know like what are the current uh mechanisms legal treaties and obligations that nations have regarding moon and then what can we look forward to so a very warm welcome aditya thanks or thank you Uh, yeah i uh, we i had like like to talk about the moon and specifically what we call lunar governance uh, i just using the words lunar governance makes people smirk uh, because you know we are on church street in bangalore and we'd like more church street governance but uh, yeah uh, yeah so lunar governance uh, basically why it's important i think you've touched upon this is that the moon is likely to get more crowded over the next 20 years so like you said india wants to put uh, an indian national on the moon by 2040 but even before that so india has had chandrayaan 1 chandrayaan 2 chandrayaan 3 other countries have their own missions so for example uh, now uh, nasa is uh, organizing this program called commercial lunar payload services where basically the, you have a lot of private missions to the moon and these are sort of risky ventures they're sort of trying to figure out new ways to go to the moon to reduce costs so you know uh, these are ventures in which you'd put these uncrewed payloads on the moon some of these might fail and they're 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 you know they're uh, accepting a, a high failure rate uh, you know so that they can actually get some payloads there and so that they can learn how to do this better and more cheaply in the future uh, and this itself is part of of course you know you have the american artemis program and the americans want to re- return to the moon permanently and the uh, chinese as well as the russians have their own ilrs program so you have uh, these uh, two sets of powers that are determined to really set up shop on the moon permanently and uh, you have a whole bunch of these uncrewed missions right and uh, the concern is you know is the moon going to turn into a junkyard and also when you have the moon's resources how do you use them and uh, these are not actually new questions they are actually as old as the space age and there's actually like a whole series of laws that go back to the early 60s and there's actually a whole series of laws that go back to the early 60s that deal with this issue of lunar governance uh, but you know uh, what i i'm really fascinated by is uh, that you know if 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 you ask people what is the first law that humans passed uh regarding the moon um most people would say the outer space treaty which was which came out in 1967 uh but actually the first 
law is actually the partial test ban treaty yeah. right because <laughs> the partial test ban treaty is you know 1963 is essentially the law that says you can't basically it 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 prescribes all sorts of nuclear testing so this is overground nuclear testing as well as nuclear testing in outer space and nuclear testing on celestial bodies so basically it said uh, if you're thinking about uh, you know exploding uh, a nuclear device on the moon no you can't <laughs> now we might think this is crazy but there were actually proposals to do this right uh, there was actually for example an american proposal of you know let's go and detonate a nuclear weapon on the surface of the moon it'll scare the soviets i don't know why the soviets would be scared by <laughs> of a nuclear weapon on the moon but yes uh, it's possible that uh, in an alternate future uh, one of the first things that humans did may have been to set off a hydrogen bomb on the moon uh, we can i suppose be thankful that didn't happen yeah but yes of course after the partial test ban treaty you get the outer space treaty this is really sort of foundational space law outer space treaty is the basis of everything that we do in space uh, today uh, it has almost universal uh, acceptance and every single country that's a space space fairer swears by the outer space treaty um and uh, basically what does the outer space treaty do it 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 has a whole series of principles that i think most of us would take for granted uh, so you know firstly basic things like well you know space is meant for uh, exploration and use of for all states uh, you can't have national appropriation article 2 of the uh, outer space treaty says you can't have a national appropriation in outer space including the moon uh, now what national appropriation means is 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 complicated one thing that i think all countries agree on is you can't for example occupy a portion of the moon and say this is my country's sovereign territory right so that that is uh, clearly that's a clear case of national appropriation but if i were to say i am picking up this rock from the moon and now this is this belongs to my country is that national appropriation yeah that is where you know you, you have you have a lot of debate right now and the rest of the uh, ost in the outer space treaty is about you know astronauts astronauts being the envoys of mankind uh, you know you can't it builds on the partial test ban treaty and says you can't uh, place weapons of mass destruction um, and you know it asks uh, states to pass national legislation to uh, o- oversee their own space activities and so on so you know that's is fairly standard stuff um, and uh, you had after that three treaties that sort of supplemented uh provisions that already existed in the outer space treaty you had the rescue and return agreement which basically meant sort of like the in the law of the sea uh you have to provide assistance to uh, astronauts in trouble if you are able to do so uh there's a liability convention if you cause damage to another country's uh, space assets then your country is responsible for that for that and you have the registration convention which is basically please register your space objects uh countries follow this to different differing degrees because of course among other things you have uh, you know uh, spy satellites uh, but yeah uh, really the uh, partial test ban treaty and the outer space treaty are sort of they were they were products of their time of the 1960s when you had this rapidly expanding space activity uh, with both the US and USSR launching these uncrewed satellites and also uh, beginning to probe the moon um and it was also the product of you know early detente between the superpowers because you had in 1962 the cuban missile crisis and uh, they did understand that they had to come to some sort of arrangements to manage their rivalry uh 
Now, uh, I should also say that, you know, these treaties didn't also come out of the blue in the sense that the OST was also, you know, it could build on some existing uh, UN resolutions. Uh, there was the Antarctic Treaty of 1959, uh, which has provisions that are actually very similar to those of the Outer Space Treaty. So, you know, you could build on these precedences and uh, and, sort of, and and create and create this new treaty. Uh, uh, now, this is basically what we call foundational space law, but... Uh, what has happened since then is, is, is you know, it, it's fragmented. Mm. And uh, so after after the uh, Outer Space Treaty and its three supplementary treaties, you don't really have uh, new agreements that have that sort of universal appeal. Now, emblematic of this is, is what we call the Moon Agreement or the Moon Treaty. Um, this really started in uh, negotiations or discussions started in 1970. Um, and uh, the, you know, this is right in the middle of the Apollo landings, right? The Apollo landings start in 1969 and end in 1972. Uh, and uh, so obviously there's this sense of urgency. We need to do something about this. Uh, the moment the Apollo landings end in uh, 1972 with the Apollo 17 mission, and it's also clear that the Soviets don't have any immediate plans to put people on the moon. Uh, the sense of urgency just dissipates from the negotiations, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, and you start seeing the Soviets and uh, the Americans start either dilly-dallying or at one point reversing their um, their positions. Now, one of the provisions that the early drafts of the Moon Treaty had was this idea that uh, the Moon is the Moon and other celestial bodies, because uh, it, it's while it's called the Moon Agreement, it's actually about all celestial bodies. Um, it says that these are the common heritage of mankind. Now, <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Every, everyone can can draw their own conclusions. Yes, exactly. All right now, where does this come from? Um, well, so there's a precedence because at the same time, there was another far more consequential treaty that was being negotiated at a multilateral level, which was the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, the UNCLOS uh, Treaty. Now, UNCLOS is one of the most important uh, and far-reaching treaties that have been negotiated in the last hundred years, right? And it's still very much in operation. For example, when we talk about what China is doing in the South China Sea, a lot of it, a lot of the time, we're saying they're violating UNCLOS, right? Uh, now, what was interesting is that UNCLOS came up with this idea. Uh, start that's firstly, firstly said that any part of the seabed uh, that is beyond the national jurisdiction of states, uh, and you know, in the eventual. The eventual form that UNCLOS took that meant beyond your exclusive economic zone. Now that that is that happened much later in the 1980s, but basically, if it was beyond your national jurisdiction, it was the common heritage of mankind, which meant that you couldn't just go, for example, and mine the seabed, um, which was obviously you know a, a very environmentally destructive thing, and it, it ended up seeming like you were just appropriating the Earth's resources, even though they didn't belong to you, and and it did not take long for that idea to be picked up and applied to the moon and other celestial bodies actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, and there's also connected with this, the, you know, the idea of creating a new and fairer economic system for the developing countries. Um, now, it, you know, basically the late sixties, early seventies was a time of uh, great uh, pessimism about the economic prospects of the, uh, these developing countries, some of them had been decolonized, some were in the process of still of being decolonized. Even when they were decolonized, uh, some of these countries were locked into these existing uh, relationships with uh, companies based in the West uh, uh, that extracted natural resources, often on unfavorable terms. So 
you had uh, a bunch of developing countries that could not uh, uh, really compete on a lot of finished goods, value-added products, uh, were often getting unfair deals on raw materials exports. And so the idea was, uh, shouldn't we have a new economic system uh, where, uh, you know, we do in some respects favor um, the interests of these developing countries, when you have a uh, trade deal, you don't insist on reciprocity between the two sides. You know, if you open, if, you know, so basically what that means is a developing country can keep some tariffs, but a developed country should open up its its markets so that these countries can can export. Uh, so this is what at that time got, came to be known as the New International Economic Order, NIEO. And uh, the Moon Treaty's Common Heritage of Mankind and UNCLOS, which also in, finally incorporated the this phrase, uh, the common heritage of mm-hmm. mankind, became came into <clears throat> currency. Now, one country that was immediately opposed to this whole common heritage of mankind business was the Soviet Union. It was not the evil capitalist Americans. It was <laughs> the wonderful communists uh, because uh, they also wanted to go and exploit the moon and they did not want uh, these developing countries to get in their way. Uh, so as negotiations dragged on, uh, you know, by 1979, 1980, uh, 1979, you know, negotiations got concluded. But what had happened by then was these positions flipped. The Soviets came around to the idea of common heritage of mankind. They, and uh, part of the reason they did so was basically they got a concession that said, that basically differentiated the phrase common heritage of mankind in the Moon Treaty from the way it applied in UNCLOS in the UN <laughs> Conventional. So, I, I mean, this is all completely <laughs> legal fictions, right? So they did that. Meanwhile, in America, you have this Reagan revolution, which is just about to take off. You know, Carter's, uh, Jimmy Carter is very unpopular and you have Ronald Reagan coming to power. And uh, you have by 1980, you know, when the 1979 negotiations are concluded, 1980, Reagan's in power. And Reagan administration says, what is this common heritage of mankind stuff? You know, you are getting in the way of American private enterprises and so on. What do these developing countries think they are? So you have these positions flipped. Meanwhile, uh, the treaties opened up for signature. A handful of developing countries sign it, as well as Australia and uh, France. Why they did so is, is quite interesting in themselves, but it again has to mostly do with their own domestic politics rather than anything else. Uh, the Soviets also lose interest. So not a single spacefaring state, major spacefaring state in, in at that time signed on to the Moon Treaty. The Moon Treaty, yeah. Right. One country that did sign on was India, but India did not ratify it. Oh, so we have kept that door open. Yes, potentially. Um, so yeah, so th- that's that's the situation with the Moon Treaty. Uh, it's something that, you know, never really came into... Um, uh, never gained uh, popularity. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. So we see, I mean, could you say that uh, given at that, that point that like, there were not many seafaring nations in the first place and the tech space-faring nations uh, in the first place. And at the same time, the technology was not yet developed to, you know, exploit the moon or any special body or do drilling and all. And now we see that things are changing. So what kind of stresses do you think that the moon treaty is, is facing or is going to face? Like, is there a, like, can the moon treaty sustain this change reality or like, can, like, does it have enough leeway or, it is much better to like to have a new deal because the powers that be have also changed from 1980s to 2020s. 
so how how do you think that plays out uh, yeah interesting question so i mean uh, yeah the short answer is the moon treaty is of course under a lot of pressure and uh, the most uh, obvious source of uh, pressure is actually the the united states uh, in 2020 the us launched uh, uh, the artemis accords now artemis accords are not law we'll get into what they are but i mean there's a bit of background to this uh, in uh, 2015 the americans passed a uh, space law uh, a commercial space law that also included a provision that allowed american companies to do uh, mining on celestial bodies and asteroids uh, now uh, Im- immediately after that in not not immediately after and then later on uh, the trump administration um, basically uh, uh, trump passed an executive order that uh, uh, asked uh, the the state department uh, to go and uh, basically make this a norm in international uh, uh, affairs through bilateral multilateral agreements or statements of of, of any sort and uh, the result of course was uh, the artemis accords right and the artemis accords initially had just uh, eight signatories now it's something like uh, 33 um signatories india became a signatory to the artemis accords in june of 2022 when the indian prime minister was on a visit to washington oh, i think it was last year so yes last year june 23 23 yeah yeah so um and uh, the artemis <clears throat> accords um uh you know what are they so the artemis accords are mostly if you look at most of the provisions of the artemis accords it's fairly short it's just it has these uh 10 uh provisions uh most of them are just like restating principles from the outer space treaty so that's you know it's mostly uncontroversial there are a handful of things that are potentially controversial now one of these is 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 i the one i find the most interesting is protecting heritage right so now if you're american you do want to protect your heritage on the moon so you have for example the apollo landing sites which include apollo 11 which is the first time humans landed on the moon so that's potentially you know and that's insignificant to everyone in the world but uh, uh so you know so you say you want to protect it so you don't want anybody else to come into activity there now does india's chandrayaan 1 uh, also Uh, qualify for example right uh, what about all those failed missions from the clips the clps program that i mentioned right so, you know you you every now and then you have a rover going and crash landing on the moon are all of those also heritage sites so like each country can claim like this is where my craft landed or crashed or something so this is my, my sacred area yes so now you have like 100 areas like that on the moon yeah so is there is there other any uh, real clear provisions or guidelines for what you you can actually call uh, heritage right so uh, th- this is this is an obvious problem and also you know it, once you declare it heritage uh, you know there's no time limit in fact it becomes potentially more significant over time right so something that's 1000 years old is more typically considered more valuable than something that's 100 years old so is there any end to this uh, so i mean uh, you know it's in india like in india you have uh, the archaeological survey of india has these protected monuments and you know, every every other building is an is a protected monument in india so uh, that's a problem uh, the other two are one is deconfliction now again deconfliction doesn't sound like a big deal uh, because basically it's good common good sense right you want to uh, it's it's really space traffic management if if i'm in an area i don't want you to also come and operate and if you're in another area i don't i shouldn't be coming there the problem is uh, and you know the the uh, artemis accords are, are very scrupulous in the way they cite the ost the outer space treaty for this right so this uh, there's a provision in the outer space treaty on avoiding what it's what is called harmful interference now 
the outer space treaty is absolutely vague so nobody knows exactly what harmful interference <laughs> is right but okay so 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 they declare this um and uh, you know uh, again artemis to be fair to artemis it's it's quite reasonable about all this it says you know the size and scope of of this safety zone this deconfliction zone must be based on actual activities you're undertaken you know if that activity ends you have to end that uh, having that exclusion zone or deconfliction zone um so and even if say your activity reduces you must again reduce the size of that so it, it's very uh, clear about that also it it asks signatories to uh, keep the un secretary general informed about all the activities that you're doing if there's any changes in your activity uh this is part of really um you know uh, again part of both the outer space treaty as well as various discussions that have happened in the un under what's called the un office of outer space affairs so again this is it's very much citing best practices that are around um the problem is that again there is no time limit mm-hmm. right so i can say this i'm con- i'm continuing to do this activity here and you continue to do that for next 20 years 30 years 40 years so essentially that kind of starts becoming like mm-hmm. like 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 your territory and it sounds an awful lot like national appropriation which is exactly <laughs> the thing that the ost says you shouldn't do article 2 of the uh, outer space treaty uh you do have a precedence in a sense for this with with the antarctic treaty now there are some countries that claim sovereignty there uh, those are not uh, claims are not recognized but for example if you go and set up a base in 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 antarctica and you have that base for 20 or 30 or 40 years yes i mean you're not really claiming that as as your sovereign territory uh but um uh, you know it it becomes de facto yeah, like, your like, area like if you want to move away from that base and want to wants to want to have a new one most likely you will have your own base there like you will not have some other country be like okay now your time is up now it's my turn exactly so it it becomes it's like you know you have in property like if you if you sit at one place for long enough it becomes your property not irrespective of whether it is somebody else's absolutely so you know in international law and certainly in space law possession is nine tenths yeah. of the law right yeah. <laughs> so if you go and hold it uh, you know so what what's to stop anyone from uh, what, you know basically what's to stop you uh, and then I, th- i think the single most controversial provision of the artemis accords the one i think that gets discussed most is the use of space resources mm-hmm. now if you look at the moon treaty the, the way you might interpret it is well you can't really use space resources in, for anything other than very very limited scientific purposes bring back small amount of say moon samples for study and so on stuff like that even when you do that you have to share those findings with other countries you, you might also have to share some of those samples you brought with other countries so that they can do their own research on it and things like that uh but uh, you know uh, i'll just i'll tell you what the artemis accords actually says since this has brought up so much controversy so one is that space resource utilization can benefit uh, humankind by providing critical support for safe and sustainable operations second uh, it says that extraction and utilization must comply with the outer space treaty and must be in support of safe, safe and sustainable activities uh, third it says that you have to keep the un secretary general uh, informed of course and then finally uh, you know signatories will use the experience they've gained uh, you know to develop international best practices and rules and so on now again this sounds very reasonable for most part and and i think it's important and very significant that the artemis accords uh, say that you 
the reason you do you use space resources is to support safe and sustainable activities in space. Now, Artemis Accords are very much connected to the Artemis program, which is uh, America's plan to return to the moon permanently. And their idea is, look, realistically, if you go to the moon, you are going to have to use some lunar resources, right? If you go to Antarctica, uh, you do pick up that lunar ice and melt it and drink water with it. You know, use that for, for drinking water, right? Now, you have lunar ice. We know that there is lunar ice, especially in the lunar south pole, but also in the north pole. Uh, and so that is actually uh, very useful for sustaining uh, human presence on the moon. Um, you know, obviously, uh, water can provide a drinking water and then water for other uses, and you can get <coughs> oxygen from it, right? I mean, that, and I mean, even if you want to have a presence, for example, the raw materials that you would want, I mean, it would be kind of unwise to expect to have like to ship cargo of, of building materials. So now there's so much research going on on how to build materials with, with lunar soil or... Right, uh, the so, regolith. Yeah. yeah, regolith. So all of that means that you, you, you can't escape not using the resource. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, I mean, the two resources that are realistically thought about for use in the moon are A, water ice, and two, regolith, which mm -hmm. is the lunar soil. So, what we mean by that is, for example, if you want to create a lunar habitat, uh, ultimately, you, you are going to have to dig up some of the regolith. At the very least, you want to bury uh, your uh, lunar habitation under regolith because it provides an additional layer of protection from radiation as well as uh, you know temperature variations that exist on the moon. And then, like you said, there are all sorts of uh, experiments, lots of startups are working on uh, processing regolith, you know, mm -hmm. baking it or using lasers to shape it, uh, basically into creating construction material, right? Now, uh, if these things work out, uh, you know, the, the case that people who support the Artemis Accords are saying is it's insane not to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what is the harm? Uh, like we are using this only in situ. This is really what's called in situ resource utilization. We're using it on the site uh, to support safe and sustainable operations in space. Um, now, of course, there are some problems with this uh, as there are with all, yeah. all of these things, right? Now, the moment you start, so the moon is a low gravity, zero atmosphere environment. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, for example, we, we learned recently that even Chandrayaan-3 basically uh, kicked up tons of lunar dust, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason that happens is uh, because uh, there's nothing to stop that dust from flying off, right? There's no atmosphere, no friction, and very low gravity. Um, the moment you start doing anything with lunar regolith, you're going to create these massive dust clouds. If those dust clouds interfere with other space operations, uh, uncrewed probes, yeah. or even other human habitation. That's harmful interference under the yeah. Outer Space Treaty. <laughs> and right? you can't stop it. You, you can't be like, okay, this is my land. So the the lunar like storm here is, is only for me. If there's a probe from China like that next to you, yes. you can't be like, you're exempted from that. Yeah. You can't say, no, not my problem. <laughs> now it gets more complicated because... It's not necessarily like everybody's like you're going to be evenly distributed across the moon because it looks like there are some attractive bits of real estate which are mostly along the poles. And uh, the reason is simply that, uh, like, for example, in the lunar south pole, you have the permanently shadowed regions where the sun hasn't really because basically, the, you know, they're in craters. So sun hasn't reached for billions of years. And that's where you have trapped lunar water ice. Otherwise, it would have melted off and vaporized. Uh, and then you have these higher peaks uh, where, because it's a polar region, there's always some sun. 
right? Uh, so that's a great place to park your solar cells, right? So you have these very specific parts of the moon that are potentially valuable real estate. And if you go there and even start using regolith, just for example, manipulate just a little regolith to build your lunar base, you can create dust clouds. Uh, those dust clouds can interfere with the space activities of other countries. Uh, those dust clouds could cause degradation. You could have dust clouds going and um, polluting the uh, uh, water ice in the or, permanently or even shadowed the regions. fact that because it's a very mm -hmm. prime real estate, as we said, if you do experiments there, then now it's it is essentially your land. So if it's very restricted and very like precious, the ones who go there for the first two, two three countries to go would essentially own that piece of prime real estate and everybody else can just, you know, like be on the bright, bright side of the moon yeah. and like be okay with no water. But yes. the ones who are on the dark side can be more happy with, you know, more water, more access and also data, right? I think so. Yeah, this is, it is it is quite uh, quite fascinating. I mean, the fact that we don't think about these things like okay, yeah, you know, it's it's the the property of man uh, of humankind. But what does that actually mean? You know, which humankind, which country goes and Absolutely. places the flag and says, you know, like this yeah. is the mankind that we're talking about. Yeah. So I mean, just so this isn't necessarily like far side and bright side of the moon. It's it's just the polar regions but yeah I, I will just before we wrap up just say that there are two things you talked about uh, all mankind the outer space treaty calls space the province of all mankind uh -huh. uh, whereas the moon treaty calls it common heritage of mankind and these are two very different <laughs> concepts <laughs> you can pick and choose right like yeah, what what your interest like accounts for Absolutely. you're like okay yeah, i believe in that one yeah. but it is yeah it is it is quite fascinating i mean as we see that all these <clears throat> conflicts will only become like much more prominent as the technology matures, as you know, as we see private sector now going, like becoming increasingly more important in, in, in uh, space uh, industry. Yeah. And once the private industry also comes in, in in a big way, you know, the all about common heritage and common mankind and all of that, it would take a backseat because at that point it would be the private interests or just the interest of businesses, which is not bad, but it changes the equation. When you have no stake and when you have actual stake, that is that is quite different. So it is. it was great having you, Aditya. I look forward to having you again when we supposedly are going to have an Indian go to the International Space Station like in a few months, hopefully, uh, that that goes well. So looking forward to talking to you about that. Awesome. Looking forward <laughs> to it. Thanks, sir. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM Network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website, takshashila.org.in.